Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast discussing issues of importance to the marketing, media, and advertising world. Today, I'm in Soho, New York City, and I'm sitting down to talk with Audrey Bavay, who is the legal consultant ANJE Consulting. Welcome, Audrey. Hi, thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Darren. Now, um, the reason for us catching up in New York, because you're actually based in uh, Paris and I'm based in Sydney, so I guess uh, some could argue New York is halfway. Uh, yeah. Either that or it'd be uh, Dubai or somewhere or India, you know. Could be. <laughs> but uh, your specialty is actually intellectual property law and how that's applied to things like brands and innovation and new product development, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. My background is uh, legal. Uh, so I studied law in France and I spent uh, yeah, most of my career as an intellectual property lawyer uh, in private practice first in Paris. And after that, for a big uh, company uh, in the beverage industry. Do you want to mention that company or should we yeah, leave no, it? Yeah, no, I can. No, no, no. It's Pernod Ricard. Yeah, Very of proud course. of this experience. I, I was the group. IP director for Pernod Ricard. So we had a pretty big uh, portfolio of IP rights, uh, more than 30,000. Yes. So a lot of work to do uh, yeah, in well, all continents. It's a global company it's, and, uh, as you say, thousands and thousands of brands across the uh, alcoholic beverages. Yes. But you're also a bit of an entrepreneur and an innovator because I noticed uh, online that you've started a non-alcoholic beverage brand. Absolutely, to complete, you know, <laughs> my experience. Yeah, I developed this uh, uh, company considering that there was uh, some, probably some products missing on the market. And uh, yeah, my product is very uh, specific. It's, uh, do you want me to sure, explain yeah, it? Sure, yeah. yeah it's, uh, you know, only because um, non-alcoholic beverages uh-huh have become really uh, popular in the last year or so. You know, this is an emerging trend. I, I noticed Heineken have produced a non-alcoholic beer and uh, it's it's sort of jumping on that change of lifestyle where people want the flavour but don't necessarily want the alcohol. Is that the category you're in or is this a different absolutely, category? Absolutely, absolutely. But I wanted to tick more boxes. Uh, you know, in the non-alcoholic beverage sector, uh, there's something that is... Uh, a real issue, that is sugar. And it's a point that is more and more important for consumers. So my product, my beverage is very low in sugar, mm-hmm. has basically no alcohol, and is, let's say, more exciting than just a water. Mm. So it's a based... Um, or oh, don't give too much away. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's... It, don't give away the secret formula. No, no, no. I won't, I won't share the formula, uh, but uh, it's, it's a product that is pretty interesting because it's also very focused on corporate social responsibility, on sustainability. And I think that today for brands, for mm. new brands, mm. that's something absolutely essential. Now, when you use the term sustainability, I just want to go back and check on that because 
uh, depending where I am in the world, there are parts of the world where that you say sustainability and they think you mean financial sustainability, i.e. will be highly profitable, um, and many other parts of the world where you're talking about environmental and social and ethical sustainability. Mm-hmm. Which one are you talking about? I, I would say mix. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what you're saying. Um, what's very important for us, uh, because I'm not alone, uh, we have a team uh, working on this on this awesome project. Um, it's about sustainability for the planet, so environment, definitely. So depending where I am in the world, you use the term sustainability. And now in some places, sustainability means making sustainable profits. In other places, it means environmental sustainability. and others, it means to be good corporate uh, responsibility. So which one is it for you? Yeah, I think it's probably a mix of what you just said. Uh, I consider that a uh, company should be sustainable, that, sh- that is sustainable, should make profits. Otherwise, you know, there's no existence uh, for, for the company. So profit is absolutely essential. But at the same time, you need to take into account people. Mm-hmm. You, need, you need to take into account the planet. So it's, I would say, a mix of actions that we put in place uh, that will provide something positive. Mm. On all these on, on areas. every dimension. Uh, yeah. We, think, we cannot do everything, of course, but yeah. with our product, with our identity, with our values, we know that we can have an impact on certain issues. Right. So, um, in, I remember back in, I think it was the 1970s or 80s, there was a thing called the triple bottom line, um, and that was people, profits, and also the planet was the triple bottom line. Do you think we're having a return to that in many ways? Absolutely, absolutely. Just look at what's happening regarding climate change. It has a new, um, probably a new image today mm. uh, because it's adapted to our times. Mm. But definitely, it's, I would say, even more, it, it's even more important than ever. Yeah. So um, the other thing, uh, just to move on, you also do a podcast yourself. <laughs> so... You know, please uh, feel free to give me some uh, feedback and tips because yours is called Brand and New and it's by the International Trademark Association. Uh, obviously, uh, you're doing a podcast in a category that's very close to your heart. Absolutely. Uh, I had to. Uh, you, you need to, and you know that, Darren, uh, you need to love the topic you cover uh, when you, you do a podcast. And I have the chance to do that with the International Trademark Association that produces the podcast. I'm the host. And uh, we discuss together about the different topics that we can cover. And basically, it's focused on IP and brands, but in a general context that could be social, that could be economic, that could be political, mm-hmm. uh, that could be cultural. So we talk about very different um, topics in different regions of the world. Um, And for the first season that just ended recently, we had a focus on technologies. So we talked a lot about uh, IP and um, artificial intelligence, IP and Internet of Things. How, what are the interactions between uh, IP and all these areas that are you know, more and more. Um, yeah, absolutely. Look, um, it's, it's changing the landscape. Now, just for um, for clarity, 
Uh, when we talk about intellectual property, my um, expectation is that that's uh, copyright, trademarks and patents. Is that a reasonable breadth of IP or is there more that I should be thinking about? Oh, you can think about designs, you can think about databases, you can think about... it's. Uh, I, I think you mentioned the main pillars, mm-hmm. but behind that there are um, other rights uh, that also have a reality uh, for uh, a lot of people, in, depending on your industry, uh, depending on uh, where you create, where you develop uh, new mm-hmm. things. Yes. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I'm interested in is when we talk about IP, I get a lot of people saying that uh, the laws are very different from country to country. Is that true? Or is there, you know, you, you, um, the International Trademark Association, is there international agreements around things like intellectual property and copyright? Or does it vary a lot from market to market? No, it varies a lot from market to market. I think there is a wish to harmonise certain areas because it, it provides also more security to uh, rights holders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's necessary to find, you know, some common grounds. And you see over time, now you have, for instance, uh, in the European Union, this trademark that covers all the European Union countries. Mm-hmm. So you have also a trademark that's international, that is protected in many uh, in many countries in the world. Uh, so uh, according to, you know, some global regulations, uh, I could mention one that is called the Madrid Protocol, that mm-hmm. is very important when you talk about brands. Yeah. So that, that's just an example. So I would say, again, both. Uh, you have these local rights and you have that have to be managed with international more global rights right because um, you know a lot of people so also uh, complain about the fact that by the time you get protection in every single market that you need to get protection one it's incredibly expensive mm-hmm. and so locks out a lot of you know innovators mm-hmm. and the other is it's also expensive to enforce isn't it Yeah. So I would say that the cost really depends on the rights you want to protect. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you talk about a patent, that's true that it has a cost because it's not only about having the right, it's also having done all the preparatory work, you know, the search, uh, the the drafting of the patent itself, etc., uh, a trademark is much more cheaper. But again, it depends what's relevant for you, for your business, for your company. Mm. So, so um, it will depend on the market that you're in. It will depend on the type of protection you have. Yes. But even enforcing that is incredibly expensive. I know I was quoted that it's sort of 60, 60 to 100,000 US to enforce even a copyright dispute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, you have some disparities between uh, the markets you want to cover or where you need some enforcement actions. Think about, if you compare a European Union market, think of France or yeah. Italy or Spain, and you compare it to the US, definitely the cost won't be the same if you want to enforce, if you want to initiate, uh, let's say, an infringement action mm-hmm. against uh, against someone, against uh, another entity. So, yes, you need to, to define what's the most relevant for you, where you have the most chances uh, to succeed, where, you, um, where it makes sense for you to bring an action before the courts. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say it's true 
what you say is true, but depending on the markets. Yeah, so because there are some markets like the EU where they've harmonised within the EU the sort of rules and regulations around um, protecting or well, registering and protecting your intellectual property. But technology is also making it incredibly difficult. You know, I know the number of times that uh, we've been on the periphery of disputes over code, for instance, you know, and, sure. and there's only so many different ways you can code something. So how can people get protection around that type of information? That's a very good question. And it was a, it was the, the purpose of the first season of my podcast of Brain in you. How can we protect? Uh, just think about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Can you protect, uh, or how do you protect, let's say, a creation uh, made by a machine? Mm -hmm. Who is the author? Yeah. And the, the answer, depending on the countries, are not the same. Right. Okay. They're so not there's the that same. much. In that, terms of maturity, yeah. you know, in the reflection. When you talk to um, certain uh, practitioners in Asia, in Europe, or in Americas, you will have, again, diverse answers to that, right. uh, depending on the advancement. You know, I had a very interesting discussion with uh, an IP lawyer in Japan who explained, you know, what was possible in Japan. And I had exactly the, the same discussion with a lawyer in India. And the answers were totally different. Not exactly. Because uh, it would be quite dangerous, wouldn't it, to uh, to actually give the rights to the person that created or programmed the AI because uh, some religions could argue that their God created human beings, so God creates all the intellectual property. Okay, so may I ask you a question then? The Who should be the author? The machine for you? Well, um Ultimately, the machine created the actual piece of intellectual property. So, yes. And then if the machine is owned by someone, the ipso facto, they then own the rights to it because they own the machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, a, there's a lot of debate around that. Because, because the person that uh, programmed the machine owns the program. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they own the outputs to the program? No, well, not necessarily, because, you know, there are a lot of uh, software systems, for instance, that the owner, the programmer, or the owner owns the software, but the customer, their data that goes into it and gets programmed, they own the outputs of that because it's based on their data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is where we get into that area of perhaps having shared ownership rights because there's a certain level that some people own and there's other bits that other people own and that they should be able to share and have protection of their component parts. Yeah, I think basically it's about the question of security. And, you know, all these regulations, all these laws have been made for humans. Mm. They have not been made for machines. So it's about what will be the future mm. of uh, the certain laws and how they will need to adjust to our, our times, to our technologies. Yeah, it's like, um, it's interesting because it is like when someone's employed, for instance, and in their employment contract, everything they create is owned by their employer. So it is possible to have, you know, automatic assignment of your intellectual property to someone. We've seen that every day with employment contracts. And in some countries, it's enshrined. You don't even need to state it yeah. implicitly in the 
um, contract because it is just the rule of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps that's the direction that we can take for machines. Whoever <laughs> owns the machine owns the copyright, yeah, owns we'll, the intellectual property. Yeah, we'll see how it evolves. Uh, I would say that I've not uh, felt any consensus on this uh, on these topics uh, during my, my discussions with experts, with all these visionaries that you know think about well, what will be next uh, in, uh, in I, yeah, the IP world. Because I jump to the next level, which is what happens when those machines uh, have self-consciousness. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is a long way away. You know, I know yeah. we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, but we're talking about it really in the, the domain of uh, running an algorithm and learning machine learning yeah. from running those algorithms rather than, um, I, th- I, I think, from all the reading and talking that I, I've um conversations that I've had that uh, true um, sentience, yeah, true uh, machine awareness of itself Mm -hmm. is still a long way off. Yes, yeah. So Uh, we can come to the rights of the machine later. Yeah, I think so. You know, we'll see when we start talking about emotions of the machine. We'll see, but uh, yeah. Now, one of the other things, um, the technology of the internet Mm -hmm. has put a lot of stress on the laws of intellectual property. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen people uh, taking uh, trademarks and changing them uh, and, you know, for um, satirical purposes or for political statements and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the number of times that the traditional legal process to actually enforce the rights of the owner has largely failed because, you know, it can come down off the internet here only to pop up somewhere else and they have to go through the whole legal it's tough. process again. It's absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's very tough to defend properly your rights uh, in the era of internet. And the, and the question would have to be, do you need to? in some ways, because part of it should be around whether it's actually damaging the value of your intellectual property rather than just, you know, a lot of this is people, either fans wanting to, um, you know, there's a beer in Australia called uh, Victoria Bitter and uh, tattoo artists go and get the rights to uh, put the tattoo on their uh, customers and, in fact, sadly, um, the brand owner gets a lot of requests from undertakers because the person, the deceased, wants the logo on their coffin. Ooh. It's called Victoria Bitter. Okay. So this is a lifelong obsession for some beer drinkers in Australia. But they at least go and get the intellectual property rights, the copyright mm-hmm. or the trademark rights to put mm-hmm. that uh, brand on their uh, tombstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after that, you know, it's also the call of the brand owner to decide what's uh, appropriate, what's acceptable, uh, how to react to that. Some will react uh, because they consider that these uh, could really infringe their rights uh, and they may initiate actions before courts. Others will, uh, in other instances, consider that they can react positively because it also brings some publicity. So, you know, it's uh, you, you have a wide range of illustrations uh, of, you know, trademark uses uh, mm-hmm. by third parties that can um, lead to very different reactions from the owner. And also um, on the internet, we're now, because people are more likely to get picked up, you know, um, 
uh, young musicians are often getting picked up for lifting pieces of music from existing tracks. Artists, uh, filmmakers are getting picked up for using uh, trademarked uh, designs as props, for instance, inside films. I mean, it must be a bit of a minefield, is it, from a legal point of view? Yeah. Uh, you know, you have a lot of contracts. <laughs> so yeah. that's, uh, that's also the key uh, to many problems, uh, just to authorise the use of reproduction, uh, the representation of the right of others. So, you know, it's... I would say that if uh, one wants to use the rights of others, uh, the the basic uh, really thing to do is to ensure that you can do it mm. and uh, with a proper authorization. Um, that's true that in the era of internet, it's uh, it goes fast and. Uh, you know, you have so much content that sometimes you don't feel you need to obtain authorization. Uh, but um, basically, uh, if you meet uh, an IP practitioner, um, if you have, you know, the project to develop something with the right of others, uh, no, no, no doubt it will, he will uh, or she will uh, advise you to, to do that properly. So, Audrey, what um, specifically about innovation, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Part of innovation is getting, in a way, inspiration from what exists mm -hmm. and finding new ways or new combinations of putting that together. What's the role of intellectual property in actually defining or, or protecting innovation? Because oh. it, in some ways, you're, innovation, you could be at risk of being accused of you know, borrowing or, or being inspired by someone else's uh, IP. Mm -hmm. no, I think it's absolutely deeply linked. Uh, why would you innovate if your innovations were not protected properly? Mm. You know? Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a big cost you know, to, to exactly. do innovation. It's an effort. It's an intellectual effort, a human effort. It's, it can um, require resources, can require money, can require inve strong investments. So, of course, you need to protect that properly. So, I would say that IP innovation and innovation are definitely linked, connected, interconnected. One doesn't go with, I would say, the other. And regarding um, maybe um, innovation, I, I would even enlarge the concept of innovation linked to IP. Um, I thought about that when, uh, when, when I ran my podcast for the first season. Uh, it was really about new technologies, but I, I thought about what would make sense uh, for our listeners um, in the in the future uh, for uh, brand new and I thought that it was not only about technologies it's also about change you know mm. and the links between intellectual property and how our society our economy change mm. uh, so it can be we, we mentioned earlier climate change it can be you know the legalization of cannabis what's mm. the impact of this on you know, intellectual property mm. and vice versa. Well, you know, and, and in fact, uh, we've seen a huge rise, uh, not just in cannabis, but CBD oil yeah. with the, uh, the hemp industry <laughs> and the number of products. So there's existing products. And then if you add CBD oil as an innovation, does that make it a new product? Or is the actual underlying formulation part of the product in the first place? 
So these are all challenges, I imagine, for uh, for legal teams around yeah. the world trying to work out, is it a new product? Is it an enhanced product and yeah. therefore IP exists elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Uh, are these the sorts of issues that uh, you find yourself dealing with? Was it an issue with your uh, non-alcoholic uh, beverage? Actually, no, because I don't have CBD or THC in my... No, no, but I mean, uh, from the point of view of how much is true new and how much comes from existing uh, intellectual property. For me, it was more focused on the brand than... uh, By the the way, you could think about CBD in your uh, product. (laughs) Could be a next discussion, maybe. Yeah. Sorry, it was more about the formula. It's more, yeah, for for me, it was more a focus on the on the brand itself mm-hmm. uh, and the constru- the building of the brand, and not a three on the formula, which is more a secret uh, recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's difficult. Uh, the, the protection of formulas uh, is not uh, so easy, mm-hmm. uh, depending again on the markets. But it's not so easy to uh, to ensure. So, um, for the brand, it's it was absolutely key for us to have a, a distinctive sign that would be recognized by the consumers immediately. Yeah, and that's you know the basic so- definition. One of the um, the other areas of interest for me is that traditionally people think about brands as logos when they get into a legal um, a domain, when they're thinking about protecting their brand, they think about, you know, the logo type or the typeface or the packaging design. And there's been some interesting cases recently. I think uh, Cadbury and Mondelez tried to enforce the purple colour of their chocolate mm-hmm. as part of that. Do you see that as becoming an increased area of protection or do you think that uh, we should be looking at the sort of very distinctive things rather than the peripheral? Because I see the purple colour as a, a very difficult argument to make. It's a very interesting question, probably one of the hottest in uh, the intellectual property world at the moment. You know, at a certain time, at a certain moment, Words are a limited resource. Mm -hmm. Even logos can be seen as a limited resource. Uh, You have millions and millions of names. You have millions and millions of design, of logos, of illustrations. So these new areas of protection, and you mentioned the color, but I could also talk about flavors. I could also talk about sounds. I could also talk about textures could now be protected in a pretty important number of markets. Mm. Well, and and sound particularly, because, you know, we're starting to hear about with uh, voice search as a technology, Mm -hmm. uh, brands are starting to look at protecting the audio Mm -hmm. that's associated with their brands. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Adidas or Adidas, which one is the one that you need to protect? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's fascinating how technology is actually making the field more and more difficult. But as you said, you know, the way the law captures what is the intellectual property is with words, isn't it? Especially trademarks, because the trademark will describe the logo type. Yes. It will describe the packaging. Yes. But it won't actually necessarily use visual reference because it's difficult to search. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, it's uh, it's one of the new challenges, you know, for practitioners. See how we can protect 
a wider range of you know uh, of brands yeah and uh, but i think it will go uh, bigger and bigger again because of the development of these technologies that you yeah. you mentioned one example but um audio is important because uh, you know we're starting to also see brands develop uh, signature sounds Um, as a mnemonic to remind people of the brands. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also mentioned flavours. That's interesting. So you can trademark or, or get protection on fragrances and uh, and taste. Yeah. Again, if it's distinctive, if it um, follows all the requirements of the laws, why not? Well, except I always thought those <laughs> uh, uh, verbal descriptions of wine, for instance, like, you know, peppery with a great current after, <laughs> you know, and all those, was really just uh, people trying to find a limited vocabulary to mm-hmm. describe something that's often indescribable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure about the chocolatiness or the pepperiness of my red wines mm-hmm. or the uh, fruity, crisp after finish of my wines, but, you know, How does the law actually capture that? Because isn't something like smell and taste incredibly personal and subjective, the way you interpret it? You have some objective criteria to define, you know, and you have some guidelines. I, I would invite you uh, and your listeners uh, to read what um, the lawyer um, and professor Irene Kalboli wrote about the topic of what we call the non-traditional trademarks. Okay. It's, for me, it's... The, it's Definitive. Uh, it's one of the Bibles, mm-hmm. uh, If not the Bible in uh, in this area, it's one of my guests actually for the next season of my podcast, and uh, she covers everything and she explains with all the people who helped her to um, to to make this book. Um, she covers all the all these areas and she explains how to protect properly a flavor. Right. So it's pretty technical, it's not simple, but you have some objective criteria. I'm wondering, um, does it include some of the scientific analysis of you know, sort of ingredients? Yeah. Because that would be certainly uh, an empirical measure. Mm-hmm. You know, if something was sweeter, you would expect to find more sugars. If it was more sour, you, or the esters that are included in it, yeah. would all be part of it, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's the, it then comes back to the formulation, really, that is being protected because that's what's causing the sensory impact. I would say, no, it's different in the sense that in uh, for trademarks, you will look for the distinctiveness, whereas for the, the formulation, if you want to, for instance, uh, be delivered a patent, you mm. will have to follow other criteria. Right. So I would say you are in different territories. That's interesting because it's a world in construction at the moment. Right. Uh, these uh, new tradi- non-traditional trademarks, and you have still some jurisdictions that do not accept them. Uh, so it's, uh, I would say, uh, a new area. Uh, yeah, in flux. work in progress. Yeah. Even though we, you mentioned the color earlier, this uh, purple color. The debate on this has been, uh, you know, lasting for a while. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, it was also interesting because I think it got different uh, different results in different jurisdictions. Absolutely. So some, in some markets, 
yeah. uh, the courts found that it was protectable yeah. mm-hmm. and in others that it wasn't protectable. Yeah. Part of it seemed, from what I've read, to come down to if the judge, and this is one of the weaknesses for me of the law, if the judge thought that the similarity or the value of uh, using that particular non-traditional trademark would have given the person accused of infringing a financial benefit rather than being a sort of more uh, objective decision around is it similar and does it have value? Uh-huh. You, you raise an important point. Uh, again, you have different legal systems. Yeah. So the latitude that a judge will have, for instance, what in what we call the common law countries, uh, for instance, the US <clears throat> or the UK, may be completely different from a civil, uh, you know, yeah. low country like France or, uh, you know, Latin American uh, mm-hmm. markets or jurisdictions. So, again, you will have a different approach country per country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've just noticed uh, we're running out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I do have a question for you, Audrey, before we uh, before we finish up, and that is, of all of the uh, the trademarks and brands and the amount of money that's spent protecting them, do you think the commercial uh, the commercial factors still stack up to protect your intellectual property? Thank you.